You ready? Yeah. You ready? All right, hold on. Here we go. What's up, y'all? You're listening to the Mayaga Nation podcast. I'm Alex Miller with the Eagle, joined always by Travis Brown, the Eagles A&M sports reporter. Travis, it's hot. It's humid. That's June in Texas. It really is. And and there's you, you want to say that there's not a lot going on right now in the world of sports, but kind of right under the surface, there is so much going on in the world of sports. Absolutely. Just as summer's heating up here, it's, things are really heating up in the world of NIL, name, image, likeness. Travis, let's just do a crash course real quick. Remind us how NIL works and just how it's currently governed. Sure. So it's been a subject of conversation for for years now, even going beyond the two years that it's been legal. Um, it, it was really the, 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 it was the, Issue was pushed by California back in uh, 2020 when they uh, issued a, a law that was going to legalize name, image, and likeness compensation uh, for college student athletes, which which is includes autographs, appearances, uh, endorsements, putting things on their social media kind of endorsements, things, anything that involves using their uh, video games, you know, and the NCAA video games, things like that. Uh, that normally people would get compensated for uh, in, in other walks of life. It was uh, outlawed by the NCAA because of holding up their definition of what an amateur athlete was. Uh, but California started pushing those issues, and then after that, there was kind of a wave of uh, state laws that were getting passed to legalize this in their states to keep competitive. And I believe Texas was the 13th to pass a bill in that initial wave. It was uh, SB uh, 1385. uh, And that's what initially legalized NIL. That was June 1, 2021, uh, when that rolled into effect. It the reason why it had to come at the state level is that the NCAA sat on its hands and didn't want to legalize this. And so the states, in essence, forced its hand and said, okay, well, this is going to be legal in the state and state laws supersede uh, an organizational's law, organization's laws, what they said. So after these started to take effect or, or started to get on the books, the NCAA came out with its own guidance saying, okay, this is legal now. Here's some guidelines to follow, especially if your state didn't pass a law. Not all states have an NIL law governing how it works in their state. Um, so that's why this thing is so convoluted because each state passes and updates and uh, changes NIL laws, and it works a little bit differently in every state right now. Texas just recently uh, updated theirs. Yeah, Texas just got out of a legislative session this spring, and a new NIL bill goes into effect this Saturday, July 1st, 2023. You know, Travis, looking at that bill and where it's where it's at now that it's signed into law, just what are some of the, what are some of the key points and just kind of how it differs from that original bill from 21? In talking to Ross Bjork, Texas A&M's athletic director, the, the the biggest thing that they wanted that they pushed for is for universities to have more interaction when it comes to NIL deals. Now, don't get me wrong. As it's stated out in the NCAA guidelines, and it has been the case in Texas law since the first law, universities can't go into NIL deals with players. Anybody who's associated with a university can't go in an NIL deal with a player who, who associated as in is an employee, um, is a has a contract, you know, uh, has a contract that has um, direct, you know, independent contractors and things that work with can't engage in 
uh, NIL deals with student athletes. But now, under this new law, universities can introduce companies and and uh, ath- prospective athletes with NIL deals. They can help give them resources. Uh, I know when I talked to Ross Bjork last week, he talked about one of the big aspects of the new football facility they're building is they're going to have an NIL room. And when he kind of described it, it's like a, think about a WeWork, but for NIL. They'll have meeting areas where uh, uh, student athletes can, you know, sit down with businesses and have a business meeting with them. They have creative spaces where they can work, a podcast studio, because part of this is that student athletes can monetize their own podcasts. The Chase uh, Lane podcast. Right, last there were several of them uh, last year around that that uh, athletes can do, and so they can record out of those studios, and that's that's going to be a big step forward that was made possible um, by this bill. Other aspects of it are it, it somewhat, and we'll get into this a little bit later. It somewhat codifies the ability for nonprofit NIL collectives, and that is a group of people who are kind of all donating to one fund to then help. Uh, obtain rights, arrange deals with student athletes. Uh, those collectives are, are legalized under this bill um, and can operate and provide NIL compensation and keep their nonprofit status uh, and be tax exempt and offer tax donation or deductions to uh, the donors. Uh, it also enables a, uh, student athletes to use A&M's facilities and uh, logo rights, you know, logos and, and branding and, and uh, intellectual property in, so, so say a car dealership does a, a deal with an A&M athlete. Before this, they would mer- wear a maroon t-shirt or something, but they couldn't associate with an A&M at all. Now, if that, and usually it falls under the contractual obligation of the company who's m- making the commercial to then negotiate with A&M and get pay them money to use their branding that they can uh, wear an A&M mm. polo and shoot a commercial in Kyle Field mm-hmm. uh, for their car dealership. So that's another aspect of it. Some, some, uh, and then one of the biggest points that I think is going to be in con- uh, a point, talking point for a while is the whole bill starts off with a clause that says if the NCAA or any third-party organization, so NCAA, the SEC, the Big 12, the Southland Conference, a lot of these other conferences, organizational governing bodies, try to enforce a law, a rule that is contrary to something that's spelled out in the Texas law, they, they can't do that because this, they're saying this Texas law supersedes any of those uh, governing bodies. So, for instance, if the NCAA came in and said, and we'll get into more concrete details of this in a little bit, but if the NCAA came and said, well, you actually, we, we say you, you can't use school logos on polos when you're doing commercials. Texas is going to say, no, they can because it's in our law and you don't have any standing to enforce that. Um, NIL records data is now not public record anymore. It's not, or well, it really wasn't to begin with, but they made sure of that uh, in this. That's another little minor detail. Uh, and um, it kind of defines what a, 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 a school sanctioned activity is, the instances where uh, athletes can and can't do NIL deals, mm-hmm. um, little things like that. But I think if there's anything to take out of it, it's, it's the... Uh, the, the, the governmental clause that keeps them out, that keeps uh, other third-party organizations out of, of sanctioning. It's the, uh, the, the, the 501c3 clause in there, and it's the ability for universities to uh, be more actively involved in those NIL deals. You know, 
this bill, uh, it, it's it's been in it's been in the works and under consideration for several months now. Throughout that whole process, explain how A and M was involved because we know they had some involvement. Sure. So so once that first bill went into place in July first, twenty twenty one, there was a little bit of a let's see how this goes period, and it was really March. Uh, 2022 that Ross Bjork and some members of the uh, A&M uh, government affairs staff, both at the system level and the university level, uh, had meetings with legislatures. Uh, it was uh, Brandon Creighton who authored the first bill, Senate Bill uh, 1385. It's uh, Representative John Kimple who uh, is involved with HB or, or authored HB uh, 2804. Uh, and so they were sitting down with some of these uh, legislatures uh, having meetings giving written uh, uh, correspondence on w what are some of the things that they want uh, as a part of this new bill and, and, and what's the landscape looking like in NIL. And Ross Bjork was very involved. I talked with him directly, and that's kind of what he said uh, their involvement was. I talked with uh, uh, John Caval, who is the CEO of Influencer, the, the NIL software program and platform that A&M uses for some of its NIL deals. He said, he, he emphasized that Ross was thoroughly involved with helping put together this bill and was actively in, in a part of that legislative process. He, uh, as, part, as a matter of public record, he went and testified as a part of the uh, House Committee uh, on, uh, excuse me, the Senate Committee on uh, Higher Education Committee on this bill and, and what effects and, and challenges and, uh, and benefits it produces. Um, and uh, there was just fingerprints all over the place. Uh, Chancellor John Sharp told actually you uh, in a conversation you had uh, that the system lawyers were very, very uh, key in, in the writing and framing of this bill. So A&M had a huge part um, to the point where um, several times throughout the legislative process when other legislators had a chance to speak or debate on this bill, there were several instances where um, they asked if they were going to be able to hear from anybody outside of schools that were in or going to be in the SEC because as we know from conversations with Bjork, some of the public testimony, there was University of Texas uh, officials involved in, in the, the making of this too. The, of course, the answers were that lots of people across the college athletics landscape in the state of Texas were uh, uh, consulted when building this bill. But that's not to say that A&M didn't have a, a really key part. A and it's, it's obvious in here. Now, I asked Ross Bjork about the 501c3 clause, and we'll talk a little bit about why that affects A&M so closely. He actually said that was another university in the state, wouldn't say who it was that offered that up. Um, but there is a lot of the concerns that Ross Bjork, A&M raised after witnessing NIL for the first year. Um, those are in here. And so it's obvious that there was uh, some conversations there. Yeah, needless to say, if, if they had used a color printer to print this bill out, there might have been maroon ink that they used. <laughs> nice. Well played. Well, Travis, you know, kind of looking at where A&M is with its NIL landscape directly here on the ground in College Station, just where do we know of where A&M donors are, you know, pretty actively involved in the NIL space as we know? <laughs> There's two, uh, when you want to talk about kind of the collective atmosphere, where that is groups that are, or organizations that are formed as a, a fund to gather in donations, negotiate rights deals, negotiate apparel deals, do all kinds of stuff. There's, there's two real visible uh, collectives. That is 
the, the 1922 Collective, which is a for-profit collective, um, very tightly associated with uh, Kenny uh, Lofton over at, or excuse me, Kenny Lawson over at CC Creations. Uh, when you go in there and see a lot of their athlete branded merch, uh, you can get a, a Spiller Light t-shirt, which is Isaiah Spiller's line. Mm-hmm. You can get uh, jerseys, you know, jerseys with players' names on the back. Um, that's all usually done through the, the 1922 Collective, which is, I have to emphasize, a for-profit collective. Um, or organized as a for-profit collective, not organized as a non-profit collective. Uh, there's also the 12th Man Plus Fund, which was announced last February, and it is an NIL offshoot that is under the umbrella of the 12th Man Foundation, which is the booster club, um, the, the athletics booster club for Texas A&M. One thing that you have to mention when talking about this is that the 12th Man Foundation is one of the only athletic booster, it is the only athletic booster club, at least as far as Power 5 schools go, in the state of Texas that is independent of the athletic department. That is, it is his own organization, nobody who is employed with the A&M Athletics Department or University is on staff or on the board with the 12th Man Foundation. It is a separate entity from the athletic department, which by their legal understanding, made it legal for them to start this fund, 12th Man Plus Fund, that will do NIL deals with Texas A&M student-athletes in exchange for marketing back towards the 12th Man Foundation, which is a 501c3, is registered for exempt purposes, which is building scholarships and facilities and things for the university. all of those things we'll get into a little bit why that's important, but those are important factors. In talking to um, Travis Dabney, the um, CEO and president of the 12th Man Foundation, back in February when this all started, they were already starting to get donations in the day it was announced for that fund. And then when I talked to Ross Bjork as of last week, no deals have actually been done with student-athletes from the 12th Man Plus Foundation. Although, again, I have to emphasize, Ross Bjork isn't involved or necessarily privy to the day-to-day operations of the 12th Man Foundation or the 12th Man Plus Fund, other than conversations he has in concert with them to provide money for the athletics department and things like that. So he is not in their offices, in their books, things like that, but he does have to be in direct contact with them which emphasizes the independent status, but also shows the collaborative nature they have uh, with each other. So we've kind of set the table where the, the, the NIL governance is currently, how A&M had its hand very actively in that space and where, you know, this is actually being implemented and, and, and money is coming from. The, the problem is it's, there's, there's been some speed bumps uh, with this, with this new bill and where NIL is right now, Travis? Yeah, so uh, two documents that actually came out within the last month. One is a memo that came from the chief counsel of the IRS, the office of the chief counsel of the IRS, and another one is from the NCAA. Uh, we'll start with uh, the chief counsel of the IRS um, uh, memo, and that has to do with nonprofit collectives. So there is a growing trend in these first two years of NIL where schools across the country, and, and really booster 
uh, and donors from schools across the country would form these collectives, again, these funds, pools of money that can negotiate rights and deals and things with student athletes, uh, and, and they were organizing as nonprofits, 501 under you know code 501c3, and that would offer them the ability to be uh, tax exempt, so they don't have to pay taxes on the uh, the the revenue they bring in, and they don't have they can offer uh, tax donations to donors who, who, who provide that. So you donate to the, the Travis Brown Collective, and you can write that off on your taxes at the end of the year. That it's seems a, okay. The best collective around. So <laughs> um, I can offer you firm handshakes and smiles um, in return, and tax deductions. And maybe offer a beer on the golf course. And a beer on the... That's, that's the, yeah, yeah, we, maybe that as well. Anyway, getting so, back. So the... Uh, the the thing about this memo is that it it, it is a legal uh, argument that the IRS is going to take uh, moving forward when it comes to uh, both accrediting tax exemption and auditing tax exemption when it comes to NIL collectives. And basically what they say is NIL collectives, when the sole purpose is to be a, a fund to give money to student athletes as in a quid pro quo for some kind of marketing endeavor, uh, that that is not an exempt uh, activity. Um, the, 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 there could only be a little bit of private benefit that comes out of a charitable organization, and that has to be um, a, as a byproduct of what the greater purpose is. So uh, I, I talked with uh, Terry Helge, who's a professor and an assistant dean up at the Texas A&M University uh, School of Law, who has a big uh, experience in tax law, and she gave the example of Habitat for Humanity, you know, a charitable organization that's been around for a while. It builds affordable homes for uh, people uh, who are impoverished. Um, and she said, and first off, people who are impoverished are a, uh, a designated charitable group. Um, that is someone that is a, a group of people that is wide enough in scope and the IRS has said, yeah, that is a charitable activity to do that for those people. So things that fall under that category get uh, permitted. Um, but the um, Habitat for Humanity, who, who does that, they also have to buy supplies. So they'll go right. down to the hardware store and buy wood and nails and hammers and drills and things like that. And that's the only way that they can efficiently get those supplies to be able to build the houses. Well, the, the hardware store is getting the money that those people don't donated to Habitat for Humanity for their own private game gain, but that's just it's a, it has to happen for the charitable work to be able to go forward. <laughs> Unless you want to go chop down a forest and forge your own nails, or wait until uh, <laughs> you get the right amount of supplies donated uh, directly from people uh, to to build a house, which would take forever. Probably. Um, so they're they're saying that. The only purpose for an NIL collective is to get money in to give to college athletes, uh, for quid pro quo, but to give to college athletes. And they are not a, a charitable you know, uh, group of people. The scope is too narrow for that because it's just student athletes. And then it's usually just student athletes at one individual university. It's not the whole student body. It's not all student athletes across the country. It's narrow. Uh, and the, the, the benefits that those student athletes get aren't just a consequences of a greater charitable cause. So that puts the 12th Man Plus Foundation in an interesting gray area because yes, the 12th Man Foundation has been recognized as a, a perfectly exempt 
501c3 charitable organization. But then they have this other aspect that mostly is of private benefit and that the IRS says isn't going to um, isn't going to be exempt. How is that going to operate? And uh, I, with some of the legal, the, the, of course, the, the 12th Man Foundation uh, didn't respond to requests to the questions we had about that. Ross Bjork, when asked about it, from his knowledge of the situation, said he believes once they do a little due diligence, they should be able to operate as, as expected. Some of these legal experts said if, if, if their job was to be an attorney for one of these organizations, they would recommend them stay out of the NIL space because it's just too murky and you don't want to risk the 501c3 status of the whole organization, the whole 12th Man Foundation, just for the NIL piece of this. So that's a major speed bump that came up from that side of it. And then kind of going along with it, the uh, NCAA put out a little memo uh, this week uh, that we obtained from the NCAA that kind of asked some questions, that was like kind of a frequently asked questions about some issues that have raised from NIL and clarifying their stance on some of these things. One is that, ins that uh, institutions that are closely related to an association can't compensate a a athletes, student athletes for NIL. That includes booster clubs. Whether they're independent or not, you can argue that the relationship is so close that it, 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 there, there's a the conflict of interest there. It also talks about some of these state laws, such as Texas, if you want Arkansas and Oklahoma have these clauses as well, that say, hey, NCAA, conferences, third-party governing bodies, if you have something that you want to do differently or want to, want to adjudicate differently than what is in our state law, you can't because our state law trumps everything. And they said, no, by signing up to be a member institution of the NCAA, you pledge that you would follow the NCAA's rules that as we put them down and your membership in the NCAA could be called into question if you say, I'm not paying attention to your rules, I'm going to go by these state rules. And so we have this massive standoff, this massive game of chicken that's going to about to happen between the NCAA, the IRS, collectives, uh, universities that's coming down. The, the IRS thing, it, it's not the law, it's just how the IRS will adjudicate these things. And so the next step in that is if a collective is audited by the IRS and says, hey, you, uh, you're not exempt anymore, they can take it to court and make the court set a precedent of how it is. Or the next level of that is there could be a federal law passed that, that says that uh, NIL collectives are charitable organizations. And then what the IRS has to, has to say doesn't matter because there's law in the books. Uh, Terry Helge gave the example of college bowl sponsorships, uh, name sponsors, forever, because bulls are always usually uh, tied in with uh, charities, that there is uh, a charitable aspect to bulls. So these uh, title sponsors, you know, the, the Cheez-It Bowl, these title sponsors were, yeah, were, uh, were, were getting tax deductions for putting their name on the bowl because they said that was donating to a charitable organization. Well, the IRS came out and said, no, that looks more like advertising than charitable donation. Those can't be tax-exempt donations anymore. Uh, and then Congress stepped in, the, the federal uh, legislation stepped in and, and said, no, we're going to say that that is a charitable donation. And it is now. Uh, and so the IRS doesn't have anything to say. So if the uh, Congress steps in and, and changes something at the federal level, then 
these uh, these collectives can be protected. Um, it's also worth noting that we talked about how the new Texas law uh, seems to codify their tax exempt status. Well, it's federal income tax, and so the state has no standing to supersede the IRS on that. So the IRS has so that that doesn't really mean anything in this new law because it has to do with federal income tax. Um, so that's just some of the obstacles and hurdles and the standoff that is coming that is probably ultimately going to be decided in the courts moving forward. Well, we've given a lot of information. You have given a lot of information, great information, done a lot of great reporting on this subject. You know, it, it seems like, like you said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to creep its way up into that federal you know, mm-hmm. arena uh, eventually. And and from talking with A&M folks, that kind of seems to be where they kind of want it to go as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's already been a few laws that have been drafted um, talking about where NIL goes at a federal level. If it's if there's a federal law, you don't have to work and, and be cognizant of all the different state laws and how they all work and the unbalanced playing field and how each law is going to be updated each time that state uh, legislative body comes into session. Uh, one federal law would solve all that. There's been a couple bills written. Uh, they haven't really had a whole lot of movement. And, and the, the, the partisan divide on this issue at the national level is between the, the Democrats who say they want more employee status of student athletes that they are employees of the university and revenue share with some of the money that's brought in from tv deals and things like that and more of the republican take on it is no they are not uh employees but let's put some guidelines on name image and likeness compensation and some some guardrails to even and balance the playing field and that debate is kind of what's going back and forth at the federal level and putting this into a little bit of a stalemate. Ross Bjork was a part of a delegation that went up from the SEC to lobby uh, uh, federal legislators towards NIL a couple weeks ago and said it was a great experience and really the first time experience that he's been on the Hill in that kind of lobbying uh, role uh, to, to, to try to push an agenda of, of college, college athletics. Um, so that's interesting. There's other court cases down the pipeline too, like House versus the NCAA, that is trying to um, go through the court system to institute revenue sharing for college athletes. So that's another, th- another thing to look at. There's multiple races being run towards whatever the end game for NIL and athlete compensation is going to be. And it's kind of c- kind of see who gets there first. Is it the court systems through some of these revenue sharing things and then the... Uh, Federal legislation, state legislation, NCAA is going to have to catch up to that? Is it the federal legislation is going to put in a law and it kind of negates some of these court things because there's already standing? So it's going to be a race to see who gets to what endgame first that kind of shapes the future of how college ath- uh, athletics looks in far, as far as a how college athletes can make money perspective. Travis, I think we've I think we've covered a lot of material in this podcast. Yeah, my head's spinning a little bit, and it has been for a while. Uh, I I don't know how to read. I, you know, Ross Bjork. I asked him if he thought when he started this job, uh, his career several years ago, if he thought so much politics would be involved, and he said. You, you had to wear a lot of hats. There's fundraising. There's donor relations. There's hiring and firing coaches. But he said he never thought you know federal congressional lobbyist would be uh, a bullet point on his resume now it is and for us who cover this 
understanding the inner workings of the legislative process, of tax law, of the NCAA, it's crazy. <laughs> but it's it's kind of the future of where yeah. college athletics is heading. So, I mean, that's why that's why you've spent so much time reporting on it and why we're dedicating a whole episode to this material. And a lot of people want to say that why people keep targeting A&M. And, and in, a, in a way, it's kind of a compliment to A&M because A&M has been on the leading edge of a lot of this NIL stuff when you look at uh, the 12th Man Plus Fund when how involved they've been in in uh, helping make some of this legislation and, and how up front and on the camera Ross Bjork has been about NIL issues and how that's the next frontier of recruiting the best athletes across the country is how well they can do once they get here in NIL. Um, that, that, yeah, A&M is a center focus in the NIL game and, and media and, and, and legislative attention is going to be pointed down on A&M because of that. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. So, hey, Travis has some great content on, on these, these subjects related to NIL that uh, will be out in, in the Eagle this week. And so be sure to check theeagle.com for all of our coverage on A&M sports and issues pertaining to NIL. We'll see you next time. It seems like every day, everything just has a way, a way to burst out the seams. But if we don't watch what we're doing, our hearts will get ruined by silly things. Good loving needs a girl, we know that's true. If we want to keep it, we got to watch everything that we do. Make sure you're sticking with me. But I wanna make sure that we're 